Capital Market Insights from ICMA. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm Brian Pascoe, the Chief Executive Officer of ICMA, and I'm delighted to welcome you today to this series of podcasts to start the new year, uh, featuring economists from leading ICMA member firms who will share their perspectives looking ahead through this year and, and beyond uh, on the global economy. Um, and with a specific lens on the outlook for financial markets and the debt capital markets in particular. So very much looking to hear uh, the views of our, our guests today. Here we have from RBC, Tom Porcelli, who is the Managing Director and Chief US Economist, and Peter Shafrik, who is Managing Director uh, and Chief European Macro Strategist. Uh, between them, they have over 45 years of experience in the field, so I'm sure we'll have some very interesting points of view and experience uh, to rely on and share with us today. Um, so jumping straight into the, to the discussion, and perhaps, Tom, if I can open with you, reflecting on a challenging previous couple of years uh, in terms of the economic performance of, of, of the global economies, uh, implications for growth, etc., Looking forward, how, how do you see the outlook for, for real growth uh, and inflation in, in 2022 and beyond, taking account, obviously, of uh, the influence of the pandemic, but also the liquidity injections that we've seen uh, into the market, uh, perhaps with the U.S. lens specifically, you know, how do you see the outlook? Yeah, well, Brian, first, uh, it's good, good to be with you. We're uh, really happy to be doing this. You know, look, I would say in the United States, you know, we see real scope for economic activity to um, really move along at a, at a, at a fairly rapid pace um, over the next couple of years. So let, let's define that a little bit, um, um, this notion of rapid pace, because I think the right way of benchmarking that is to think about what potential growth is. And in the United States, potential growth is about 2%. So, you know, we're coming off of what uh, is going to wind up being, you know, 5% plus year um, in 21. Um, we're now at the, here at the start of uh, 22, and it's looking like we're probably going to want to uh, being around a 4% um, growth uh, pace. So, so two years already now um, under our belts uh, in, in the wake of COVID, and economic activity is meaningfully more than, um, than potential growth. As I think about sort of prospects for 23, and, and I know here early in, in 22, probably hard to focus on what's going to happen in 23, but I think it's, I think it's useful just to sort of sketch out a, um, sort of a, an idea around that and why we think 23 could also be another good year. The, the U.S. consumer is sitting on a mountain of cash. There's countless ways of, of sort of arriving at that idea. One of them is to look at something called excess saving. Another one is to look at something called liquid consumer assets. Um, and so liquid consumer assets would be things like literally like, you know, checking accounts and savings accounts and things like that. And when we look at that, we can also further break it down by income quintile. And so what we know is that right now, the second, third, and fourth quintiles, so sort of, you know, the, the, middle, the, the middle quintiles, if you will, they're sitting on about a trillion dollars uh, extra liquid assets over and above uh, the, pre, the pre-COVID pace. So just, just to make sure everyone sort of understands what it, because a trillion dollars just, I don't know, you know, we, particularly in the news media today, recently, uh, you know, all we hear about is these big trillion, multi-trillion dollar plans coming out of Washington, D.C. So it's useful just to sort of frame what a trillion dollars actually is. In the United States, the delta, right, the change on consumption in any given year, in the years leading up to the pandemic, the change in consumption was about $500 billion. So if you think about the sort of the, you know, the, the second, third, fourth, and fifth income quintiles, they're sitting on two years worth of consumption. 
two years worth of consumption. That's an unprecedented amount of money, um, again, over and above where we were pre-COVID. So the, the prospects are actually quite good from a growth perspective, uh, not just this year, but next year. And again, why? Um, because I want to I want to make sure this point is very clear. It, there's literally not enough resources in the economy for the consumer to spend a trillion dollars in extra liquidity. Um, uh, you know, again, just in the context of consumption only grows by five hundred billion dollars any given year. So that means that you you'll get this bleed through in into into twenty three. I think the reality there too, um, and and just to rope in the the inflation part of the conversation. I think the reality there too is you have to keep in mind that inflation is going to remain elevated. This has been a long-standing call uh, of ours. Um, we do expect that it'll slow from these very heady pace. You know, right now um, in the United States, CPI is running at about a seven percent pace. We do think it'll slow down as the year progresses. But again, I I, I want to make sure that that idea is is very clear to everyone. We expect that once you get past these sort of you know some of these supply chain issues, which make no mistake will linger for quite some time still. But once we get beyond that. We still think that inflationary pressures will linger um, for a couple of key reasons. One is you're going to wind up seeing um, consumers shift away from goods spending to services spending. So services spending will start to pick up some of the slack where goods prices will um, start to slow. Um, and then you have wage dynamic in the United States, which is robust to say the least. And if labor markets remain tight, as we expect, that'll be another factor that really puts a floor underneath inflation. So not only do we expect strong growth, for the next couple of years, but I expect that inflation will remain north of target for the next couple of years. Very interesting. Thanks. A very active picture, I think, by the, the sounds of it for, from a U.S. perspective. Switching to, to Europe, Peter, uh, what would be your perspective uh, on the outlook? Probably a little bit more, uh, less clear cut, I guess, within you know the complexity of the European economies. Well, uh, first of all, yes, of course, Europe is always uh, a little bit more complex and I'd say a little bit more troublesome. But I think in broad strokes, the picture that Tom has outlined applies for Europe just as much. Um, so just, I mean, Tom was just highlighting the growth numbers that we are expecting relative to trend growth. Uh, and the key message here is that we're staying north of trend in uh, 22 as well. And the same is true in spades for both the euro area and the UK. I mean, we expect figure north of 4% year on year for the euro area and probably close to 5% for the UK. That's not a million miles away from consensus, but it's certainly north of trend. Now, but in my mind, the more important question, particularly for the euro area, but also for the UK, is that the growth that we are expecting should be much more broad-based um, than where it has been. When you think about it, really, um, basically since the financial crisis, certainly after the European debt crisis, the growth contributions that we had essentially came from two sources only. One was consumption domestically, and then there was the external bit and the external demand when we were as exporting nations when we sold. Let's leave the external side um, to the side for a second. The internal bit really, what was lacking for you know, at least 10 years were investment by corporations. Our investment levels have been extremely tepid. Um, and secondly, government spending, because the governments have been in balance sheet repair mode, and there's a big, a big difference to how the US government has treated things. I mean, we have been reining in our budget deficits um, and for, you know, forever in the day. And coming out of the pandemic, particularly this last point is very different. Um, I mean, we, we now have much wider 
national budgets. Uh, we have a debate about the stability and growth pact. And we have the NGEU, uh, which is here to stay for the next three years at least. And there's an active debate currently what to do with it afterwards. So for the very first time, we have a European element, an EU-wide element of spending public money. Um, and as you know, it will only be repaid over a long period of time. So we have a real borrowing to spend program here on the public side. But also on the, um, on the corporate side, one of the things that we firmly expect is that investment levels will be um, much higher than where they have been in the past. And uh, just, I mean, there's multiple reasons for it, but I just want to give you three. Um, the first one is um, what a lot of people are talking about is the whole green agenda, which requires a lot of investment in new technology and, um, and upgrading and sort of your kit, if you want. The second part, in my mind, is a direct response to the pandemic. Uh, when you look at sort of what it has done to the supply chains and the Europeans uh, being externally exposed much more so than um, North American companies, they, they are relying a lot on imports um, from other places. And um, we know that um, um, goods are being partly assembled and crisscrossing Europe. So we reckon that there's gonna be quite a bit of investment to streamline and, and future-proof and, and crisis-proof the production chains. And then thirdly, and maybe we can come to this uh, at a later point, um, our view is that we are bumping up against capacity constraints, particularly in Northern Europe, Germany, the Netherlands, the UK, quite significantly. And there's probably a requirement to invest from the corporate side as well, just to increase capacity. And when you put this all together, it should be a much more solid growth picture than what we had before. Now, I probably want to round off just as a brief outlook for inflation. And here, the, the picture is very different between the UK and the euro area. In the UK, we, we have sort of a very similar situation to what Tom has described for the US. Inflation currently is very high. Unemployment is low. And we have capacity constraints in the labor market. In part, they stem from Brexit. Um, and uh, the uh, inflation levels are likely going to stay elevated. In the euro area, the situation is slightly different. We obviously currently have a relatively elevated inflation picture as well, but there's a lot of base effects there. And this is basically a big energy story, uh, which is most likely going to drop out. But what we do expect is given the tightness of the labor market as well, that sort of the wage pressures start building as the year progresses and probably sort of come really to fruition next year in 23. Um, so it's a little bit behind where uh, the situation in the US is and, and the UK, which, and I don't know if we come to it later, um, which also gives the ECB a little bit more ammunition to hang back um, when the other central banks are getting more aggressive. Thanks. Um, and as part, I guess, of the economic recovery in, in Europe and the, the breadth of that, as you say, um, obviously, I think typically there's been quite a high dependence on, on imports from, from Asia to, to support that. Uh, and it looks like, you know, the recovery in Asia is also so taking shape. Yeah, how dependent is the European uh, performance based on, as you mentioned, the fluidity of supply chains, but also the, the economic recovery in Asia? Yeah, I, I would differentiate those two. Um, so first of all, as you rightly point out, the European companies, um, they're quite interconnected globally. Um, and the European economies generally have a much higher share of their economic activity been done overseas compared to um, sort of uh, Tom's constituencies. We know that. Um, and therefore, it is, it is always, so Europe is always a high beta play um, on the rest of the world. So if the, if the rest of the world recovers, uh, that be that North America or increasingly Asia, because our share to Asia has increased over the last 10, 20 years, um, that is always beneficial for Europe. However, and, and I think this is sort of a, another component to what I just said, what we expect going forward 
which we reckon is going to be quite different compared to where we've been in the last 10, 15 years is we expect that our domestic performance is going to be much stronger. So if our domestic performance is stronger, relatively speaking, the external part of the economy is, I don't want to say not relevant, but is less relevant in relative terms because the contribution of it still meaningful, but it can be overshadowed by the domestic side, you know, for once. And that's a, that's a very healthy development, we reckon. That's noted. Thank you. Focusing in, perhaps, given the economic and inflation picture that, that you've both painted, focusing in, perhaps, on, on the central bank uh, activity, which I, I think is also now clearly creating a, a lot of uh, attention and, and garnering a lot of attention. Uh, what are your respective views across the Fed, obviously the ECB and, and the Bank of England, uh, as to how they will react to the inflation picture in particular um, over the course of the next, I guess, 12 to, to 24 months? Clearly, there seem to be at differing stages of tapering or even balance sheet reduction uh, and also uh, rate hikes. Um, can you give me your respective pictures on, on the central banks uh, over which you've got a, a perspective um, as to how they might react and, and what their moves are likely to be. Tom, perhaps we're starting with you. Yeah, uh, yes, definitely. Uh, Peter, I'll, I'll, I'll hop in there first on, on the U.S. Um, look, I think the Federal Reserve recognizes that they're behind the curve at this point. I, I think it's as simple as that. Um, there's, you know, there, there's now a rush by uh, central bank officials to, to really sort of drive home that inflation actually is important to them, which, you know, is sort of a relief to hear, to be honest. I mean, this is not something that um, they've been talking about uh, up until recently. Uh, and, and I think that they're very late to the conversation, frankly. So uh, I think that um, it's long overdue that we start the process of removing accommodation. Uh, the Fed did start that, obviously, toward the end of last year with the process of uh, starting the process of tapering. And now, uh, obviously, we're staring at not just rate hikes, but we're staring at um, a shrinking of the balance sheet. So we think rate hikes will uh, kick off uh, at the March meeting. We think that there'll be four hikes for the year. Uh, a number of Fed officials are now getting on board with that idea. In fact, um, even just, just today as we're recording this, there was uh, another Fed official that came out and said uh, um, that he believes that that four is, is possible. I think it's not only possible, I think it's highly probable. <laughs> Uh, so you're going to get these four hikes this year. The, uh, the Fed will start shrinking the balance sheet this year as well. But but again, it's funny. I, I know, you know, here we are recording this in January, and I know a lot of people think of sort of December, right, the, the coming December as the finish line in a lot of these kind of conversations. As it relates to the, to, to the fate of monetary policy, that's not the finish line. Uh, you know, you, you might be just through the middle of, of the entire process, because as we think about 23, you know, we can easily see another four rate hikes. Um, being teed up uh, for for next year, so you get eight hikes between both this year and next year. Um, and again, you know, frankly, all it does is get you back to roughly neutral policy. Um, and I think that's a really important distinction. Um, uh, you know, I think people need to make a distinction between the simple act of raising rates and the very different act of tightening policy. You really only tighten policy once you once you move through neutral. Now, I think we all appreciate that it, it can be very difficult to know with any precision what neutral is. Um, but I think you sort of have a sense for it within a range. And I think if the Fed does, you know, total of eight hikes between now um, and, uh, and the end of 23, I think that that probably puts us, you know, roughly at neutral. The last thing I'll say on that is, you know, some people might be thinking to themselves, yeah, but, you know, um, you know can the Fed really engineer a perfect landing on that? And look, you're speaking to someone who's been pretty critical of the Fed, particularly of, of, of late. I think criticism that has been uh, warranted. But I, I would hasten to add, the Fed did engineer a pretty close to perfect landing 
um, during the very last cycle. I mean, they basically got funds to, you know, roughly neutral. So it's not without, it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's also not without risk, particularly if the Fed is um, feeling like they need to sort of rush to, um, to sort of catch up because they're behind. Um, you know, that could certainly open um, them up to uh, the potential for a policy mistake. And we have to recognize that. But I think uh, for now, the short answer to your question is, monetary policy is going to become less accommodative. Uh, and that's going to start literally in, in the next few weeks with the first uh, rate hike in March. So just to push you on a specific, I mean, over, a, you know, over the long term, where would you see neutrality uh, for rates? Neutral is probably around 250. Um, and I think that that's roughly where we get to. Um, you know, I think that the, um, the, the, the challenge for the Fed, though, particularly now, um, is, you know, it, again, you can hear this uh, in Powell's uh, recent um, speech and talks in particular, you know, it sounds like they're now getting worried um, about inflation. Now, again, I would stress, I think they should have been worried about inflation many, many months ago. Um, but I, I always get I always get a little nervous when other people get nervous, because then I wonder if, um, you know, there's going to be some sort of mistake that 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 happens. And and again, I think that they, I, I think that, um, you know, as long as they have as long as they have this reality in mind. I like that they're starting the process much sooner than I think a lot of people appreciated. Um, I think the thing that will give them some comfort is inflation is going to slow as the year progresses. Um, uh, you know, as I said at the onset, um, and I think if you know by the end of the year um, our view uh, materializes that inflation has indeed slowed, um, and the Fed has given us you know at least a few rate hikes, I think the Fed will probably take some comfort from that, and I think that 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 is probably the thing. Um, that allows them to avoid a mistake because they can sort of say to, the, say to themselves, hey, look, it seems like it's beginning to work, um, this removal of accommodation. And so I, I don't know that there's going to be really a, any urgency to, you know, for the Fed to blow through neutral. Um, and you know, perfect landings uh, don't always happen, but it did happen in the last go around. So um, you know, we, could be hope, we can be hopeful for now. Um, that's a hard thing to do with the Federal Reserve, particularly of late. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, I, I think some people don't necessarily view me as a, someone that gives a lot of hope when it comes to the Fed. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to have a little bit of hope here. That's good to know. Peter, over to you on the view from Europe, ECB and Bank of England. Sure. Um, I'd probably deliberately start with the bank. And that's because the bank is probably closer to where the Fed is. And then I'll, I'll say <laughs> something about the ECB. Well, I mean, the bank is, um, is at the forefront. But... Um, they, they will probably follow a different strategy to um, what they've done in the past. So what I mean with that, um, I mean, obviously, they have hiked already uh, 15 basis points in December. And we reckon they're going to hike again 25 basis points this time around to 50 basis points um, at the next meeting in early February. Now, but this is really sort of where the comparison with previous cycles probably end, because the bank has given us guidance in their so-called sequencing review about how they would withdraw monetary policy. And one of the key things that they said is once they get to 50 basis points, um, which is a relatively moderate level, I think we all appreciate that, they would switch gear bits and they would start um, with a quantitative tightening strategy, uh, essentially just removing um, parts of the QE from the balance sheet by letting bonds that mature run off. Now, in contrast to the Fed, uh, I think there's two differences here. Uh, on 
firstly, um, the bank has never done this. So the Fed has some experience, the bank has not. And secondly, when you look at the sort of the composition of the balance sheet of the Fed, they have a relatively steady flow of um, bonds that they have on their balance sheet and they can um, tailor make their runoff much better than the bank can because <clears throat> the guilt market is smaller. So they have smaller bonds um, that are maturing at a certain point of time. And we have a very lumpy one coming in March and then we have a long period of uh, very small ones and before it sort of picks off again. So long story short, what we think is, is going to happen with the bank is the bank is going to start tightening because they also appreciate that they have an inflation problem, in particular that they have an inflation expectation problem. When you look at where inflation expectations are in the UK, they're relatively elevated compared to that target. But the way how they do that is going to be different and they will need some time to assess that. So we reckon that rather than what the market is currently pricing, so constant string of 25 basis point rate increases over the course of the year, the bank will probably go to 50, embark on QT, sit there, evaluate, maybe do another one later in the year um, and see how the economy reacts. I mean, I could go into a full analysis of what QT does, but needless to say, it is slightly different for both the market as well as the economy than a, than a rate hike process is. Now, for the ECB, I think the situation is entirely different. And the main reason for that is when you, when you look back to where the ECB came from or where the euro area came from, if we recorded this two or three years ago, probably one of the questions that you would ask me is whether the euro area would be the next Japan, which has a disinflation or maybe even a deflation problem. Now, that seems to have got fallen by the wayside, but that memory sits with the ECB, with the ECB Council quite a lot. Um, and one of the things that they have done, I mean, obviously, they've changed their remit a little bit and increased the inflation target marginally. But more importantly, when you listen to what President Lagarde says is that they, they have learned from the mistakes of the past. Nobody wants premature tightening. And they're absolutely afraid of going too early, going too hard and pushing the, the, the nascent inflation expectation increase back down into a disinflationary environment. And they don't want that. And when you look at the policy that they've put out, they've just um, extended their QE program. Yes, they bring it down and the PEP is going to die, but the, the other program, the APP is uh, slightly increased and it's probably going to run at least for the rest of the year. So we reckon that the ECB could be an environment where they are still um, making policy more accommodative while most of the other central banks are making it less accommodative or even tighter. So, and, and for good reason. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's a big discrepancy. Now, maybe last but not least, that does not mean that the ECB will sit there forever. Um, and obviously the market's already applying rate hikes at the end of this year and into 23. But that really depends on whether that other element I mentioned in my, uh, in my earlier comments about tightness in the labor market and increasing wages when that comes to fruition. And if it does, then I think the ECB has a fighting chance of uh, hiking rates. And if it doesn't, um, then I think we'll be talking about very low rates from the ECB for quite some time. Very interesting. And, and as well, I think within the context of Europe, you know, some central banks feel that the ECB should be taking a different track. So I think that debate will, will, will continue uh, in, in parallel. Focusing specifically, I guess, you know, on, on the bond markets now, and, and again, we've talked about, you know, quite different scenarios in the US and the UK uh, relative to uh, the, the broader continental European picture. Um, how do you respectively see um, the outlook for, for the bond markets and, and, and I guess the credit markets in particular, because, uh, you know, there has been a significant growth, I guess, in some sectors in the bond market that in the credit space uh, that may be a little bit more sensitive uh, to rates uh, and rate hikes 
Um, so I think, you know, talking specifically within the context of, of the US and particularly and potentially the, the UK uh, also, you know, how do we see this move in, in central bank activity and change uh, in the rate outlook uh, impacting on, on the bond markets uh, and on the credit markets in, in the respective jurisdictions? So perhaps again, Tom, uh, turning to you first on, on that one. Yeah. So in, in, in the U.S., in the rates market in, in particular, look, I, I think we've we've sort of seen what's going to happen already. Right. We've, we've already been given a little preview of that, which is to say, you know, the front end is the front end, as always, is at the mercy of what is happening from a policy perspective. So um, if the Fed is uh, going to um, you know, continue to, to sort of this continue this process of removing accommodation, the front end of the market is going to um, con continue to rise in yield. Uh, and, and in fact, what I would say is, I think we need to be mindful. Right now, the market is not pricing in what I said earlier about, um, about terminal funds. Right now, the market is really only pricing in about 170, 175 from a terminal perspective. Um, uh, you know, the market's, uh, I would argue, at least 50 basis points short of, of, of what's gonna happen terminal. And as a result, um, you can uh, make the argument that the, the market is not fully priced then um, for, um, uh, for what uh, what what lays ahead of us as, as it relates to the Fed, um, you know. Look, I think, and that's so that's the front end of the market and the back end of the market. I mean, look, I think we have to be mindful that, um, you know, the, the there's depending when you grew up in this business. I think a lot of people have have assumed that look, if you have inflationary pressure, you know, that tends to lead to higher back end yields in particular. Um, you know, that's not how it really works now. Um, the, the way that it works today is, you know, the, it's, it's funny to say this in, in, in 2022, but the, the U.S. is much more, um, uh, the rates market in particular, is, is much more of a global market today than it was even just 20 years ago, right? Which sort of seems um, crazy to say, but that's just the reality. I um, mean, you know, if you constructed a model, a fair value model of 10-year yields, you know, 20 or 25 years ago, you know, when I started in this business, you, you may not have any um, um, international variables <laughs> built into that model. But today, the model will be dominated um, by, uh, by factors that are taking place outside the United States. And so what we need to be mindful of, and this is uh, um, uh, probably a good handoff for Peter, um, is if, if, if global rates are going to remain low relative to the United States, um, then that means that um, rates in the U.S. are going to look attractive um, to, um, to international investors. Uh, and, and I think that that helps keep something of a ceiling uh, over uh, um, on the top of, of the back end in particular. Okay, good segue for you, Peter. Yes, indeed. Um, and maybe again, if I, if I start with the U.K. and then move into the euro market, I mean, look, first of all, as Tom was just alluding to, I mean, the, the short end of the curve is typically at the mercy of what the central bank does. And as I was saying earlier, we reckon that the market um, is probably pricing in a little bit too much for the bank because the bank will um, start with a QT program. From that perspective, I think the short end of the UK market has probably done most of its move already. Um, but then if you look at sort of what a potential QT strategy does, depending on how it's been executed and, and how the DMO reacts and all the rest of it, but I think a very good assumption is that it probably impacts the longer end of the curve more than it does the shorter end of the curve. So traditionally, what you've seen in the tightening cycle um, is that the, the yields obviously move up, um, but the yield curve flattens. We think this time around, yields will probably move up, but the yield curve will seepen, uh, which is a very different, uh, which is a very different response. Now, in the euro area, I think that's probably even more pronounced because, as I was alluding to earlier, um, we, we don't think that the ECB is going to move anytime soon. 
And then on top of that, when you look at the euro area, um, and that probably leads me into a second comment that I would like to make about this, um, the inflation component of nominal bond yields has increased, but is still historically speaking low. So when you look at, for instance, 10-year break-evens, inflation swaps, whatever you want to look at, in the US, we're back at where we were, historically speaking. Um, in the UK, we're back where we've been, historically speaking. In the euro area, we have increased, but we're still about somewhere between 30 and 50 basis points shy of where we've been before the big slide that occurred in 2014. So 10-year inflation swaps, for instance, in euros are currently trading just under 2%. Historically, we've been at 2 to 250 so, and that's also, by the way, one of the things that um, Phil Lane from the ECB always says needs to increase further. We, we're not there yet. That's what the ECB is drumming home. Um, inflation expectations are actually still too low, despite the, the headline figure being relatively high. So when you, when you factor that in, um, when you think that the short end can stay relatively anchored in euros, but the back end has still scope, just shifting inflation expectations, break-evens higher, without impacting sort of the real component, which is really what drives the tightness or the accommodation in the market, then you can see that also there, there is a potential for the back end to go up in nominal terms um, and steepening the curve. And that's in fact what we've, uh, what we've implied in our forecasts. So the, the short ends is probably not going to be the main driver despite central banks moving towards a, um, a tightening policy. And I think that's, that's quite unusual. Do either of you see any um, significant worries for the credit markets? Well, uh, maybe, maybe a, if I take this first, um, I mean, the, the, the point to really watch out for, um, in my mind, is the euro market here. Because despite everything I said, and despite the ECB staying supportive, one of the things that has happened, or will happen rather, is that the support through the purchase program is going to go down. So the PEP program, as I said earlier, will die um, by the end of March. The APP will take over, but grand total, they're going to buy less. And when you keep in mind, I mean, there's, there's probably two credit components that are quite relevant for the euro market. One is the actual corporate credit, um, but the other one is the sovereign credit, um, because one of the strategies that's, that, that the ECB takes care of, which is very unique in the, in the bigger scheme of things, is that there's not one euro sovereign market, there's multiples. And we know that this is very important. And we know that sort of the fragmentation as the ECB has called it has haunted them for years. And if they scale back the purchases, we really have to see what the credit spreads, the corporate spreads, but also the sovereign credit spreads, what they do and how the ECB will react then. And then if you throw into the mix that there might be some potential pitfalls from the political front coming up as they always do in Europe, that's clearly a risk. Now, our forecast or our expectation is that we'll see a little bit of a widening of credit spreads, um, but probably not so much. Um, given that the ECB is still active, it's not going away entirely uh, to, uh, to cause any problems. And if I may, one last point, particularly on the sovereign credit, one of the very unique and, um, and novel situations that we currently have on the back of the increase of inflation expectations is that Southern European real yields, Italian real yields, Spanish real yields, for the first time really in, in ages, they are negative. So there's a very new situation, which, by the way, we think will help the, support the economy. And we also have to see how that component from, a, from an economic point of view is developing going forward as the ECB steps away. Very clear. Thank you. Tom, anything to add on the credit side in the US? 
No, I, you know what? I think Peter's overlay, I think, is uh, very useful for, for this recording. Okay, that's fine. Thanks. Um, and then finally, I, I guess, uh, you know, you've painted a, a very interesting picture, both of you, and, and thanks for that that going forward. But what are the sort of, you know, the, the black swans, the things that can't be predicted? Uh, clearly, you know, the pandemic hasn't gone away. Some geopolitical challenges can continue to exist. Would you pinpoint anything, um, you know, that, that participants, that listeners today should be particularly thinking about that could certainly... Um, you know, create a, a additional dislocation uh, in the bond markets as, as we look ahead? So I, I think, you know, as I think about risks for the coming year and beyond, because I look, I, I think to be, to, you know, if I always try to be as balanced as, uh, as I can when it comes to sort of, you know, where, uh, where the risks are. I, I, I never really want to lean one way or the other. I always try to say, okay, I need, I need to know where, what a potential downside risk is, and I need to know what a potential upside risk is. And I think when I think about 2022, um, I think that there's probably more upside risk than there is downside risk. Now, let me be clear. Um, we all recognize and appreciate that COVID is still um, something that we are dealing with and enduring, and, and you know, um, other variants are uh, almost surely going to happen, and, and, and we recognize that. Um, Powell has highlighted that each variant um, has had um, less impact on the backdrop you know, uh, that's that's right. And, and it has played out that way. And our hope um, is that it will continue to play out that way. Um, so with that aside, you know, what I would say is if everything I said earlier is right, that the consumer is sitting on all this cash, um, then I think that it's really easy to make the case that there's, there is probably some upside risk versus downside risk for the current year. But when I think beyond this year, you know, one of the things that's really caught my attention um, is the fact that you now have consumers that are demanding more uh, loans, and you now have banks that are easing lending standards. Um, I tend not to really love that dynamic, to be honest. I think that it's, um, I get it, you know, banks are built around lending and people like to borrow. But the one thing that really punctuated the last cycle was the lack of borrowing and the lack of lending. Um, and that's one of the key reasons why that cycle went on for so long. You know, we didn't have that classic imbalance of overusage of credit that tends to take down an expansion. Um, and so it's early days and, and maybe nothing comes from this, but, but I, do, I, I, I do take note of the fact that this, you know, we could be on the verge of a credit cycle here. Now that will juice growth um, if it does happen um, even beyond the horizon that, that I've talked about um, on, on this call. Um, but, but I think that you know, it, it's, it, as long as it's done in a um, responsible way, uh, I think that you know, good can come from it. Um, but I think we all know that um, when we tend to go down that path, it doesn't always um, turn out particularly good. So uh, I would say that um, that's, a, that's a key risk that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking at over the course of, and again, I want to be clear, that's not for this year. And um, that's a risk that, that will unfold over the course of the next few years, if it unfolds at all, but it's, it's certainly on my radar. Thanks. And Peter, anything to add in terms of your thoughts on unforeseen risks? Yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest, I mean, sitting here in Europe, having covered Europe for over 20 years now, uh, I think we're used to talk about downside risks, so maybe I start there. Uh, and, th and there's some which are already sort of sitting on um, investors' calendars, marked in invest in cal investor calendars, and others that are not. So uh, French presidential election is one of the things that could scupper things. Uh, the whole situation around the president in Italy and uh, potential for Draghi to move um, to the presidency, that these are risks that have, have been well flagged up and are already discussed and, and, and the risk that um, this 
you know, could spiral into something that through an election cycle maybe turns out to be less beneficial than it currently is um, for Italy. But outside that, uh, I mean, there's, there's two things um, that I would flag up on the geopolitical side, and then I'll mention a few others. Um, I mean, the situation in Turkey, in my mind, um, is something that Europeans should should be absolutely mindful of. Um, a, because it's obviously a very close neighbor. Uh, secondly, economic ties are, are there. Um, but most importantly, um, we have been here before. And the, I mean, the, the situation in the Middle East is still uncertain. And Turkey is an important buffer also in terms of accepting refugees. And we know um, how the situation politically could turn out um, if that was not the case. So that's one of the things. Um, the other thing, of course, and um, the whole Ukraine situation is currently cooking up and not necessarily because of the situation in Ukraine per se. Um, but for us in Europe, we are very dependent um, on external energy, oil, gas in particular. So if the situation spirals into sanctions and counter sanctions, it could well mean that oil prices for us and gas prices for us go up again. And um, the inflation picture as we have it in Europe currently is already dominated by energy prices. So that could be something that would um, potentially even amplify it. Now, I do wanna, so, so and there's, there's probably others um, that we could talk about, but I do wanna spend a minute um, and sort of just chime in with what Tom has said, because I also think for the first time in quite a while, um, there's considerable upside risks here for Europe as well. Um, and one of them that I see is, and it's probably a little bit more um, advanced than it is in, uh, in the UK than it is on the continent of Europe, is that we get a faster increase in wages. I mentioned earlier, the, the labor market is already tight. When you look at forward-looking indicators, hiring intentions, um, job vacancies, and the, the, the situation looks extremely prone to generate wage inflation. Now, in the continent of Europe, we're currently seeing almost none, um, but that could change. So, and if that's the case, this would make the economic backdrop, particularly as far as consumption is concerned, even stronger. And that, of course, would also then potentially change the picture I've painted for central banks. So, so that's definitely one upside risks. Um, and then maybe um, last but not least, if I can come back to what you mentioned earlier, Europe is very dependent um, or, or let's say very connected with the rest of the world. Currently, what we're seeing is that Asia, China in particular, are experiencing a bit of a downswing. Um, and we're currently also seeing that the COVID situation, which I don't wanna say is under control in Europe and the US, but um, is being dealt with mainly through the vaccination program, is being dealt with quite differently in China. And that has uh, different economic consequences. So if that situation clears up and all of a sudden um, China and Asia in particular uh, as a whole sort of start growing at a much stronger velocity again, that would be an upside risk for Europe as well, because on top of the good domestic situation, you also then would add a very decent um, um, foreign component, which for Europe can be quite meaningful. So I guess I leave it there, um, but um, I'm sure if we put our heads together, we come up with more um, positive and, and negative risks. I think you've both highlighted um, a, a lot of uh, potential uh, outlying issues there, for, which are good food for thought uh, for listeners. But um, I would like to thank you very much uh, for your time today. Uh, some great insight. Clearly, there's a lot of divergence uh, across uh, the two main regions that we've been, been discussing. Uh, but I think also a lot of things to be positive about. Uh, but I think your insight's been great. And um, I thank you very much again for your time today. Well, thank you for having us, Brian. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. 
For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.